Open up your Bibles now, 1 Kings chapter 12. So uh, this is where we're at, on the new drill now with note sheets. So I'm going to give you an opportunity now to kind of get up and get your note sheets if you miss it on the way in the door. It's a two-note sheet Sunday. Does that make anybody nervous right now? Like, is it a pot roast burn Sunday? I don't know. No, 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 no. It'll be, it'll be fine. Relax. I'm just going to nerd out a bit on one section of the message. So I, it's a two-note sheet Sunday. So in the back tables, all right, you're going to need both of these sheets in your hands. And I had a cool story on, on one of the sheets I'm going to tell you in a minute uh, that happened um, that way. So I've got the extra notes there, and each week as you're making your way in the door, you can pick them up that way. Online folks, your online host can direct you accordingly. And then if you miss a Sunday and you'd like the physical note sheets out on the kiosk, on the info kiosk, we'll keep about the last month or so out there. So some of you coming and going with travels and that, again, on your way in the doors on Sundays or throughout the week, you can pick up your notes that way because... Uh, I know many of you appreciate having some of those physical notes in your hands. So here's where we are. This year, to kind of bring everybody up to speed, we're reading through the Bible together, about 250 of us or so, and if you've fallen off the Bible reading bandwagon, guess what you can do? When you fall off something, you know what you do? You just work the muscle of coming back. Guilt-free, come back, turn to today's date, jump in and go, all right? Don't try to make up all the dates you missed. That'll just be a uh, ministry of discouragement to you. So what you should do, just jump back in with us. We're reading through the Bible together. You can join the plan, eaglechurch.com slash Sundays, and that shows you where you can jump in on the plan. So we're, we're over halfway through. We just finished the book of Proverbs. So we're reading through the Bible together, and we're teaching through it together on Sundays. So we've come to the life of Solomon over the last couple of weeks, and we talked about how Solomon started out amazingly well. He was asking God for wisdom. He was relying on God for strength in his leadership. And then last week, we talked about this turn in Solomon's life. We called it the fade. The fade turned into a flat-out free fall is what it turned into, right? That he just, and if you need some more detail, you can listen to last week about what contributed to the fade. Where was the, where, why, is the, why aren't there more finishers? We've got more fading and less finishing going on. What's in all of that? And that's where we're at with the third king of Israel. And where we're going with today's message is this visual up here on the screen. So go ahead and put the map up here. So Solomon, when he passes away, okay, so here's the visual. The map on the left there is the kingdom known as the nation of Israel under Saul's leadership, first king of Israel, David's leadership, second king, and under Solomon's leadership all the way until the free fall. So united, right? Geographically, that's modern-day Israel today. And then when Solomon passes away, it's the right-hand picture. So here's the question of today. How does that happen? And where is God in the midst of something that used to be so united, used to be so together? Where is God when something goes united to fractured? What's God up to that God's the God of those broken spaces and shattered places? And when you look at Israel, how it used to be a heart of oneness and now becomes fractured and divided and splintered. And we're going to look at what I think is a fairly sobering text today. I mean, this is kind of a sobering commentary on where the storyline goes apart from a massive work of God's grace in the hearts of the people. And so maybe you come in today, I entitled today The Fractured Life. Maybe you come in and you feel like your own personal life is fracturing and splintering in all kinds of different ways. You know, that's just not for a nation. That's a kingdom of any kind. 
could be a business, could be a ministry, could be a church, could be a marriage, could be a family. It could be a kingdom of any kind that goes from united to fractured. And where is God? And what is he up to? And how is he coming to me in that space? That's what we're going to look at today. And one of the handouts that's really important for you today, that I want you to pull it out right now, is this handout right here. So I put this together several, several years ago because this is where we're going to go in the Old Testament storyline for the next several months. I was doing a funeral a couple months ago, and this guy walks up to me. I hadn't seen him for years. And he said, Pastor Eric, Pastor Eric. And he reaches inside his coat pocket, and he pulls out this ratty piece of paper that was coffee-stained and folded in mold, and it was this piece of paper. He said, Eric, nine years ago, you handed this out, and I haven't had it away from my Bible reading time since. I have such an encouragement to me. I thought, well, I just thought everybody threw those things away. I thought, that's so great. At least one guy kept a hold of it. And the point is, it, pr it provides a little bit of a guide to all these names and circumstances and places and people that are going on from this part of the story forward. Up until now, it's been fairly easy to keep track of like who's leading the nation of Israel. Saul, David, Solomon. But if you look at the top of the front side of this sheet, today we're going to look at where the kingdom gets fractured and splintered now into 10 northern tribes called Israel and two southern tribes called Judah. And if you glance down the column there of how the nation goes, you kind of get preview of coming attractions. Let me give you a little preview. The northern 10 tribes known as Israel... They go 0 for 19 on godly kings. Well, that's going to be a super encouraging series we're going to be in right there, right? 0 for 19. Not one king in the north sought the Lord and did it his way. The southern kingdom of Judah, the two tribes in Judah, you see there, I put a little like, like asterisk cross there, a little black cross by the godly kings. If you do the math, 8 out of 20. Hey, they batted 400. Better than Ophir, but it's certainly God's probably looking for him a little bit high. But 8 out of 20, southern kingdom of Judah. And so your Old Testament narrative, this is key to understand kind of the grid of where is God and how is he at work and how he raises up prophets to address the kings. So shocker now is to help you understand when you read a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, do you think it's going to be a super encouraging read? It's not a quick question. No, they're 0 for 19. Do you think God might have some things he's trying to say to the northern kingdom of Israel? It's a repeated theme. Repent, turn, rend your hearts before the Lord. It's, it's an, I mean, that's why when you read some of the prophets, you're like, I feel like I've heard this story over and over because, again, the journey they're on, and it'll kind of place the prophet's writings inside the king. So we'll come back to this often. And those of you online, I think there's a link, and your online folks can point it. We've got this posted on our website. So you can access it that way as well. So notice, here's where we're at in the story. On the front page, the top left-hand column, we've got two key characters today. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and Jeroboam, which is Solomon's secretary of state. They become the next two key characters in this storyline. So let's pick it up. 1 Kings 12, verse 4. Here's where we're at. So after Solomon dies... His son, Rehoboam, steps into leadership. Well, guess what the people want to do? The people want to change the culture and the atmosphere that Solomon had placed on them, especially during his free fall. He got really harsh, and we looked at the size of his building projects last week. He built a lot of stuff. 
And so he had a lot of harsh labor camps going on. He was really hard on the people. So when he passes away, they think, hey, let's go to Rehoboam. Let's see if we can get like a change in the labor laws and lighten the load a little bit. And so they go to the king, verse 4. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days, then come back to me. So the people went away. So the people come with a request. Rehoboam says, give me a few days to think about it. Verse 6, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So the elders, think now the elders, not necessarily just as we think about the elders in the local church, though certainly a part of that. Elders would be, those would be like the, the people who've lived a little more life, who've walked with God a little bit longer, who maybe got a little less hair and a little more gray and all those things. They're people just wiser and mature through the cumulative effect of life experience elder role in the kingdom of Israel. They were put in like spiritual leadership positions based upon the lifestyles they've been living and the longevity of their walk and the integrity of their walk. They, they, it was smart. Rehoboam said, what do the elders have to say about this? They said, hey, if you lighten the load, they'll lighten your load. Pretty straightforward, right? Lighten their load, they'll lighten yours. Let's see how Rehoboam handles this. Verse 8, Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Huh. It's a good thing we don't struggle with this today, but let's just imagine. Let's just imagine, kind of put ourselves in the framework that we might at times, and those of you, hey, younger folks, just not, come back now, stop counting the light panels up here for a moment, and like come back into the message with me for a moment. Those of you who are younger, here's a direct application from this Old Testament storyline that there's some propensity in the human heart, especially when we're younger, to be drawn to the counsel of our peers and reject the counsel of our elders, especially when the counsel of the elders goes against the grain of our preferences and our peers. Let's see what happens. Verse 9, he asked them, his friends he grew up with, what's your advice? <laughs> How should we answer these people who say, lighten the yoke your father put on us? Verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than your father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And so you can see their counsel's a little different. They basically say, hey, they want you to lighten the load, double the load. Make it harder. Flex your muscle, extend your power, make it even harder. Just pile on. So Rehoboam's got two. He's got the elders say, if you lighten the load, they'll lighten your load. And the peers say, double their load. Make it heavier. Make it harder. Verse 12, three days later, Jeroboam. Now, who's Jeroboam? He was Solomon's secretary of state. So he's kind of a bit of a ringleader over the Israelites. He had a lot of reputation through Solomon's reign. And so he gets all the people together, goes back to Jeroboam to try to get a report. Remember, three days later, come back. I'll give you a report on my decision. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. Verse 13, the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men. 
And so here's, here's kind of one of the battlegrounds we have to work through. Like, how do things go from being so united and having a sense of unity to so fractured and splintered and divided? Well, one of the things that happens in here is that there's this, there's this thing we've got to work through on not all advice is wisdom. Those of you who are a little bit younger in your years, you recognize that all, not all the advice you seek, those around you, comes from a base of wisdom. It's okay to ask your peers for advice. The Bible might call some of it foolishness. Might. I just I want you to be open to it. I'll tell you where this shows up for me a lot, premarital counseling, okay? So in premarital counseling, I love helping couples prepare for marriage. It's one of the ways I'm trying to invest to deal with kind of the crisis and the marriage and family unit instead of just working with folks who kind of, it's all disintegrated and down at the bottom of a cliff and broken up and a big mess 20 years down the road. I'm saying, what if we back the story up and say, let's try to get the thing on the rails headed the right way early. So I'm just trying to spend a lot of time and energy investing in a lot of the young people who are getting married and super grateful to do it. But here's one of the conversations we have often in my office about this. You know, every couple comes in young and in love. We're in love. Awesome. And so I want to probe on how do the, in the language of 1 Kings 12, how do the circle of elders feel about you're in love? Let's talk about how mom and dad, how's mom and dad's relationship with this relationship? How about grandma and grandpa? How about aunts and uncles? How about the circle of elders that might be like your youth pastor, your small group leader, your mentor, you follow me? The circle of elders, the people around you who have your best in mind, who love you, who are in your corner. What's their commentary on this relationship? Now, it's wonderful when everybody's, oh, it's great, and that's wonderful. But then there's, there's always a segment. It's like silent, looking at the floor. Uh... Uh, they'll use a phrase like, not real supportive. Hmm. So right here, right, 21, 22, 23 years old, in love, all their peers are saying what? This is awesome. And then all their circle of elders, or a good chunk of their circle of elders are saying, might want to think this through a little more. So the Bible would say wisdom there, church, right? Wisdom would be, I'm not saying pull the plug on the whole thing. I'm just saying we ought to pause, we ought to step back, we ought to have some conversations, do some digging, get underneath the surface of the concern, of the lack of support, of the, I remember one couple years ago, they were like, oh, Pastor, I don't know what to do with that. They tried to have some, they're like, we want to have a family meeting in your office. I thought, oh, this ought to be great. So they had both sets of parents come with both of them in my office. I barely had enough room. We were all kind of huddled up together. And I said, well, I guess let's start with um, mom and dad. And the ironic thing over that hour was, in the young couple's defense, mom and dad had failed to put words to the depth of their concern to the degree that they were in that hour in the office. I think if they would have earlier, we might not have been in the situation we were in. And I think they were kind of trying to like leaning into the Pastor Eric premarital process to kind of like deal with it. And I was trying to lovingly say that, you know, 
hey, this is the role of the circle. Like, this is the body of Christ. We've got to do this with one another. We've got to love one another enough, not just to high five and say, that's great, when it's all in line with the counsel of the peers. It's wonderful when that's the case. Love people enough to express your pause point, your concern. There's too much at stake here. It matters too much. Next to making a decision for Jesus, young people, this is the next most important decision you're going to make in your life. Who you choose as a spouse. Don't blow by the circle of your elders and just say, ah, they don't get it. I'm just going to hang out here in this, you know, the bubble of my peers. Because as we're going to see with Rehoboam, this doesn't go so well. And I think the application to our lives today would be right. God has placed a wonderful council of advisors in our life called those around us who've lived a little more life with God. Who've got a little more gray hairs, a little less hair up here, a little more gray here, and just say, you know what? I'd really like to sit and understand and grasp their wisdom. And I'm grateful for the young people in this church who do that. You guys are exemplary models of that. And your role, young people, this is how you encourage. I try to encourage our 20-somethings in this way. Encourage each other in this space. Don't let your 20-something friends just drive it over a cliff and you stand there and say, yeah, I kind of saw the whole thing coming. No! Say something! And in this case, you know, Rehoboam, I think, models what happens when you just ignore and push it away. In the midst of all of the wisdom that Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, we just read through Proverbs this past few weeks. So much wisdom in there. We were posting our different points of wisdom and how it was hitting all of us. It didn't exclude him from some really foolish decisions. Because not every piece of advice you receive is in the place of wisdom. And Rehoboam, he pushes away the counsel of those who are older and wiser and he goes with the counsel of his peers because I think it aligns with his preferences. And what happens with Jeroboam now? What, what, Jeroboam, verse 18 and 19. Let's see what happens. Verse 18 and 19. Let's see what happens. King Rehoboam sent for Adoniram, who was in charge of the forced labor. So here's how we see how it goes. But all Israel stoned him to death. Huh, this is working out well. So your head of your labor force now goes out. He's executed by the labor force. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. I want you to write 1 Kings 11.31. Write that in the margin of your Bible right there, 1 Kings 11.31. That's where God told Jeroboam this is how the story was going to go even before the story went there. So this isn't surprising to God. He was just saying, hey, it's going to unfold this way because I think he saw into the heart of Rehoboam and how he was going to handle it. So 1 Kings 11.31, he tells Jeroboam, this whole thing's going to go from united to fractured. What was once of oneness is going to be splintered and divided. And then for Jeroboam, verse 31 of chapter 12, here's what it says of him. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Now, that should raise all kinds of flags in our journey so far through the Old Testament, right? It's not up to Jeroboam to just appoint who he wants to appoint to serve in God's temple and altar and all that. No. You see, he's just picking whoever he wants to do whatever he wants to do. Jeroboam is off the rails. This thing's, he's on a free fall, right? He's in the fade and on the free fall with Rehoboam following in the stream of Solomon. He got a good example when he watched Solomon 
fade out into all of this. And so obviously God's not pleased. He's not pleased with Rehoboam. He's not pleased with Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam, he sends a prophet, an unnamed prophet to Jeroboam. And while the midst of Jeroboam, like, raging in the temple and doing what he wants, all of a sudden Jeroboam's hand, like, shrivels up in the midst of him, like, throwing a fit. And then he goes from, he goes from, hey, I'm going to do what I want to, God help me, when the prophet's there. And so, you know, he went from, I'm going to do what I want. He went from, seize him to pray for me. That's what Jeroboam, like, pray for me. And I, I wrote, a comma you've heard me say many times, when the pain of your current circumstances exceeds the pain of change, things start changing. For Jeroboam, it wasn't until his hand shriveled up. It's like, pray for me. It's like, dude, really? You took you to that point? You weren't seeking God at all until that point? Until things got. But when it started to get to the tipping point, then his heart at least started to call out to God. And then the closing paragraph of chapter 13 tells us how it ended for Jeroboam, because his heart never really fully turned, as far as we know. Verse 33, even after all this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. Really? That's your filter? Just availability, (laughs) willingness. I think God might have a little different filter, Jeroboam. But he's like, anyone who wants to serve, I'm there. Verse 34, This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. So that's how the scene goes for Jeroboam. That's why on your sheet here, there's not a little black cross by Jeroboam's name. And then, verse chapter 14, let's see how Rehoboam, it goes for him, 21 Verse 21, chapter 14, here's kind of how it unfolds for Rehoboam. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. Remember, southern kingdom of Judah. You have two tribes down there. Jeroboam takes the ten tribes of the north. Rehoboam, two tribes in the south. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. He accumulated, here's the data, 18 wives, 60 concubines, 28 sons, and 60 daughters. Where do you think he might have learned that from? That's just a fraction of what the dad did. It's like, dude, you're like, at least he kept it in double digits. Remember Solomon, he had more wives than days of the year. So it wasn't going well for Rehoboam as well. In verse 22, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. Verse 23, they had also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, Asherah poles, and every high hill and under every spreading tree. Verse 24, there were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So church, there's your back, there's kind of the biblical narrative of where we are in the story. So the question for the remainder of the time, how does this happen? How do we go from Saul to David to Solomon to Rehoboam to Jeroboam, from united to fractured, from oneness to splintered and divided? How does this happen? Not just in a kingdom, a geographic kingdom of a nation like Israel, but any kind of a kingdom. A business, a ministry, a church, a marriage, a family, a kingdom of any kind. How does this happen? I think two things that kind of function as a bridge to our lives today. I put them in your notes this way. 
leaders exchanging revealed truth for unrighteous living. So let's start with the leaders. Solomon knew he needed to steer clear of the Moabite, Ammonite, and Hittite women. He knew, but he just didn't do. Rehoboam knew that there was wisdom in the council and circle of the elders. He knew, he just didn't do. And Jeroboam knew that God wanted the high places torn down, not built up. He knew, he just didn't do. And isn't that a commentary on the human heart and the condition of our fallenness? We know, we just don't do. It's the knowing-doing gap. Knowing in our heart of hearts what God wants here. Seeing it, knowing it, and then getting to the place of actually stepping into and carrying out what God wants. And when leaders, when that gap between knowing and doing gets too wide for too long, church... Fractured and splintered only becomes a matter of when. It's no longer a question of if. It's just a matter of when it's going to occur. That the leaders have got to hold the fort. That the leaders have got to stay God-centered. That the leaders have keep their eyes on the Lord, be faithful and obedient to what God wants done, regardless of the consequences of that obedience. I understand it might have been more convenient. His preferences might have aligned personal preferences this way. But what does God want? That's the core issue for the leaders. And this part of the story is when the leaders exchange revealed truth, what they know in their hearts God wants done, for unrighteous living, fractured life is sure to come. And by the way, this is the New Testament. James 4.17 said this is the de- one sentence. You need a one-sentence definition of sin in your Bibles. Write James 4.17. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. That's a commentary on my life. That's like every Tuesday for me. I know. I just don't always do. And the net result of that is what was once united becomes fractured and divided. Second application for us today is followers. So there's a leader's application. Now there's a followers who carried the name but lacked the substance Now remember, church, what's the role of the Israelites in this part of the story in salvation history right now? What's the role the Israelites are to have? They're supposed to be God's people. Their label is God's people. So that means the Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and all the other ites and land, they're supposed to look at the Israelites and see how they relate to one another and how they relate to God and say, that's what Yahweh is like. They're supposed to be a distinguishing group from all the other ites in the land. But what is this story reminding us now? It's like what Rehoboam and Jeroboam and what the second half of Solomon's life, what does it say? They just become one more ite. They're just one more ite. They're not distinguished any ways. They're having shrines to the high places, Asherah poles, multiple wives, intermarrying. What does that sound like? That sounds like all the other Ammonites and Hittites and Parasites. They're just one more ite. They had the label, God's people. They didn't have the substance of the life to back it up. Application for us today. I suspect there's somebody here today, somebody listening today, who you've been on the personal receiving end of some really hurtful and difficult things. You've bumped into someone along the way who had had the name, 
They had the fish on the back of the car. They had the double stuff Oreo Bible. They had the five highlighters. They had the cross lapel, cross on their lapel. They had a chapter and verse for every situation. They quoted the Bible. They had all the stuff, but they just lacked what? The life. And when you bump into that, you're on the receiving end of what the ripple effect here in the Old Testament story is. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm sorry for whatever hurt or pain you experienced from another member of someone claiming the name, the label, the title, follower of Jesus, Christian. And yet, maybe a big gap to actually having the substance. Galatians 5 tells us what the substance of the life looks like. But a life controlled by the Spirit, what? It's filled what? Full of the Holy Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That kind of a thing. You go, that oozing out of the center of a person, the explanation for a life that reflects those things is the Holy Spirit. The life. But there's something that happens in religion where you can get all caught up in religion and completely miss Jesus. It's staggering, but it's very pervasive. And if that's happened to you, I want to invite you into hopefully a journey with Jesus now to find some healing, to find just like what the Israelites found here, as discouraging as the storyline is, the united to the fractured, like, where is God in, in this? Go ahead and put the map back up, Ted, for us. So where's God in that? He doesn't abandon them. We're here today. We're actually singing songs. We sing about the lion and the lamb. You know what the Bible says about the lion of the tribe of Judah? God, I didn't give up on him. I'll work with him. I'm God of the fragmented and the fractured and the broken too. His original intent, I'm sure, would have been to try to keep the nation together and have a united kingdom under his headship. But when it's splintered and fractured in all these ways, I'll work with this too. I, the 0 for 19, he works with them too. We'll get ahead of that. We'll get into that in the weeks ahead. But the two in the south, Judah, Jesus comes. And here we are people of Jesus, 190 nations, 2 billion, who represent. God is present. He's active. He's at work. Even when leaders exchange revealed truth for unrighteous living, even when followers, even when we hold on to the name and miss it on the substance of the life, even when all that's going on, God's still moving his purposes forward. And I close with a, a summary from a book by Edward Gibbons. I put this summary in your notes because I thought, I think today's message is a bit of an application, certainly personally in all of our lives. But I think there's something here that's a word for us as a nation right now. And it's rooted in Edward Gibbons' work. He did this work on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And he said he came up with five conditions of Rome. What led to the collapse of Rome? Here's what he said and see if you follow application to us today. He said the first thing that happened in Rome was the undermining of dignity and sanctity of the home as a basis of human society. 
Think back to David and Solomon and think about what's unraveling on the home front. And then think about our nation today when we're struggling with just basic definition of terms for marriage and family. The second condition, Gibbon said, was the higher and higher public expenditure of free bread and entertainment for the masses. Wow. I mean, the, the power and influence of an industry in our country today labeled entertainment, it's staggering. To the tune of $720 billion just this past year. The third area, Gibbons pointed out, that happened in Rome, the mad craze for pleasure and sports that grew increasingly sadistic. Now, when I grew up, I mean, really the only thing that was borderline rough on TV was like, you know, Handsome Harley Race and Rufus R. Jones and Ric Flair, and it was WWF on Saturday afternoon. It was more acting than it was. We've gone from that to... You look at the UFC and the cages and its real bodies and real broken bones and real bloodshed. I don't think Rome's Colosseum is that far away. Fourth, Gibbon said, the building of great armaments when the real enemy was within. The erosion of individual responsibility. So Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they had no trouble marshalling all of their military troops to try to deal with all of the issues outside when the real failure that needed to be dealt with was inside. And could you imagine, could you imagine what our nation would be like if we deployed as many resources to deal with a war of terror in here as we do to deal with ISIS out there? Could you imagine? What would our country look like? I think it would look quite a bit different. And then fifthly and finally, he said, the decay of religion as faith faded into mere formality. Huh. When I read that, I thought, in God we trust as a nation that shows up so prominently, even here in Indiana on many license plates, in God we trust. At one point, it was a fairly non-negotiable in our land. Isn't it ironic today that it seems that God and faith and Jesus and his word, they rarely, if ever, have a seat at the table and some of the highest discussions in our land today. And that's sobering. And so I just want you to kind of glance through that list and look at these five and, and ask the question, if Rome didn't stand, if Israel didn't stand, what makes us think we will? Unless what? <laughs> Unless what we see in here, right? That God keeps working with the people. The, the nation does crumble. It goes from united to fractured. But God doesn't abandon them. He works with them in the rubble. In church, it, we may be on a trajectory that it's, become, it's going to become a little more rubble-like before we get hearts to turn. I don't know. But Rome was convinced they were never going to fall. Israel was certainly convinced they were never going to fall. They would always stand. And I suspect a good portion of our own nation and its leadership convinced the same way. But I think God and his word would be, hey, this is a sobering message to the heart of leaders and followers that apart from a massive work of grace and outpouring of the Holy Spirit to turn hearts the fractured life won't be a matter of if it's just a matter of when 
And then where's the hope in the midst of that? The hope is that God is present, even in the splintering, even in the dividing. He doesn't turn his back and he doesn't abandon. He comes to us and accomplishes his purpose through it and in it. Let's pray together. Father, recognizing today some listening, feeling very fractured in their own lives, maybe coming in with some personal stuff going on, home, marriage, family, work, Um, just some things splintering and dividing and breaking apart. And uh, I pray that today you'd be able to lift up their eyes and to see you coming to them in the midst of the fracturing. And then for all of us, Lord, would you give us kind of a, a sobering challenge in the core of our being to heed your word and your ways. To give us the grace to listen to the counsel of those who maybe are a bit older and wiser and more experienced. To give us grace and mercy when we lean maybe too much into our peers and reject uh, the wisdom of those who've gone before us. And then forgive us, Lord, when we don't get the knowing and the doing gap right. When we know what we ought to do, we just don't do it. Have mercy on us, O God. And then give us the grace to find the substance of life in Christ that matches the label follower of Jesus. So I pray for us, I pray for our church, and I pray for our nation. May we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. May we see a massive outpouring of the Spirit of God in our land. Bring revival, bring awakening, bring renewal. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' holy name.